Cradeline Network. the law and this is the 40th episode of big meg one 40 years of big meg one my name is conrad alongside my friend eli and this is the podcast where two americans patrol their way through the judge red magazine this episode we're covering the meg for april and may 1994 volume two issues 52 to 54 this episode we're fighting monsters in dread missionary man and shimura um we're being monsters and creep, and of course, sending postcards from space with Judge Anderson. And if you'd already long with us, you find the comics we're covering today in Judge Dredd, the Complete Case Files 20, Anderson the Sci Files 2, and the Judge Dredd Magazine 350. How you doing, Eli? I'm doing great. Yeah, happy 40th. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, it's, it's an exciting time for sure. Or something. I don't know. It's a good. T- it's it's an okay time, you know. <laughs> adventures, so forth and so on. You know. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And speaking of adventures, let's get things started with story one. Judge Dread. Uh, first, we're finishing up a story from last time. A giant with script robot John Wagner and art robot Ian Gibson, learning about Tom Frame. Last time, Judge Dread and Cadet Giant were after some robots that had caused a bunch of damage and stuff like that, and they. Followed him back to a secret robot cult meeting where we learned that the cult leader was none other than Dredd's old robo servant, Walter the Wobot. Oh, geez. He gives a sermon to the crowd about he earned his robot freedom in a fight against the robo revolutionary, call me Kenneth. Then he worked for Dredd. Then he got cast out and tried to start his own business. But then he got bankrupted by Dwed again. And now he's founded a cult based around Call Me Kenneth with a rallying cry of death to fleshy ones. I hate those fleshy ones, Eli. Oh, man. (laughs) Um, Giant sees all this and calls into control. But the judges are then spotted by a robot. So it's time to start shooting. And this is a pretty easy fight. It seems like the bots all get blown away pretty easily. But Walter and Dread, or but but Walter escapes out the back, and Dread goes after him. He gives chase, telling Giant to handle things here, and the cadet cadet takes out most of the rest of the uh, of the robots by dropping the big like "Call me Kenneth" like effigy, or like he's got got like a crucified "Call me Kenneth" that Giant then drops on all of them. Backup arrives, and Giant goes to help Dread, who's caught up with Walter. But Walter pulls a gun and shoots Dredd. The lawman is down. Oh, no. <laughs> Walter then starts to monologue as Dredd says he doesn't, as Dredd keeps saying Walter doesn't have the guts to shoot Dredd. And it seems like he does. Right. But before he's he, been shot. <laughs> yeah, seriously. But before we can test this fully, a shot rings out. It's giant following Walt, uh, foiling Walter's plan and 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 shooting Walter that he explodes. Um, Giant tends tends to an injured Dread who and he chides the senior officer for like not waiting for backup. Like you know you really messed up here, Dread. Right. The day is saved and Walter, as technically a free citizen of Mega City One, will be repaired and given thirty years in the cubes. All that's left is Giant's fine. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. I like that. I like a. Uh... 
dread being reprimanded. And that's great. Yeah, absolutely. You know, he can still make some mistakes. He got blinded by his personal relationship with Walter, you know? All that's left is Giant's final evaluation, and Dredd gives it, shaking Giant's hand, and congratulations. He's a full judge. Congratulations. Good times. Nice. Now, did I know about Walter, like, the robot? Like, I, don't, I-, I don't know if I brought him up to you, honestly. Okay. Like, okay. Walter's very much sort of an artist, like, a, something from the very early years of Dredd, I guess. Yeah, that's what it seemed like. Like, it was very much, like, because, like, Call Me Kenneth sort of happens in the first, like, sort of half year of Dread. This sort of, there's, like, a a robot who, like, leads an uprising of other robots, a big robot war and stuff. And that's really where we see the anti-robot sentiment that Dread has that we were now seeing in the Mechanismo stories and stuff like that. Like, it's one of those... That's pretty funny. Yeah, I hadn't it's, even uh, pieced that together, but that yeah, makes a lot of sense. His, his anti-robot sentiment has been there from, from the start, pretty much. Mm-hmm. But in the events of that, like, Walter saved Dredd and was given his freedom, but it was sort of, not like Dredd's sidekick, but like a side character in Dredd yeah. stories. And there was mm-hmm. some attempt in the early days of 2000 AD to kind of make Walter be his own. Like they gave him some solo stories and stuff like that. And like he was sort of a semi mascot for the comic or something like that. I don't know. I was always very annoyed by him. I never really liked him that much, you know. <laughs> but so, <laughs> but as time went by, as he was sort of de emphasized and eventually kind of disappeared for the comic. But it is sort of a. Sort of a, a nostalgia piece or like just kind of, I don't know, something yeah. for old timers like me, I guess. Yeah. And I mean, I think that's that's why he felt old, because the whole mm-hmm. robot uprising seems like that's early sci-fi. That's like, yeah. we don't have any, we haven't done anything yet. We, of course, need to do a robot uprising. Yeah. It's, so I was it's, like, it's, it feels a little elementary for dreads. Yeah. Like, it's the first thing that sort of presents itself if you think of a reality right. in this future with all these robots and stuff. Right. Like. Well, first they got to turn on us, then things get more complicated, you know? <laughs> right, exactly. So we, we got a second Dread story here. It's called Howler, script robot John Wagner, art robot Mike McMahon, letting robot Tom Frame. I'm excited about this story because I like Mike, I like Mike or Mick McMahon's art, and we haven't really seen it in the podcast since 1984, so a long time. Um, this story, however, specifically is kind of complicated just because um, McMahon's artwork here sort of had this evolution to it to, to the style we're seeing here, which is sort of a a transitory phase to what he'll look like in the present day, and like it just looks very different than I think what we're normally seeing in the pages of these comics. I guess. Yeah, yeah, it's it's interesting because it still does show like a lot of skill and understanding, but it's yeah, mm-hmm. it's like almost abstracted in a way. Yeah, yeah it's fascinating. <laughs> Yeah, because it's got a lot of these, like, sort of, I don't know, like, straight lines or something like that. Like, it looks almost, like, kind of, like, childish or simple or something. But, like, when you take a closer look at it, I think it becomes more more complex and there's a lot going on yeah. with it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so, at, yeah, it's fun. I don't know. It's, it's fun when these guys bring different things to the table, I think, you know? Yeah, absolutely. At Sump Tower, a giant green beast teleports in and stomps to the building, smashing through resolving, re- revolving doors. He demands their best rooms, but the presidential suite is taken. 
The monster won't hear it, though. Never say no to me, he shouts in a page at page filling volume. He goes to the rooms and demands that Judge Dredd, the ruler of the city, apparently be brought to him on his knees. Dredd arrives shortly thereafter, not waiting for backup. And at the hotel, people are being the people being evicted are unhappy. So the aliens demand instead they stay so he can enjoy inflicting pain on them. Dredd arrives and finds the room a bloody mess. Um, He says he's taken the alien in, but the alien just laughs, says he's the howler, the voice of thunder and razor of planets. He wants our total subservience and 20 people a day to torture to death. Dredd offers him a bullet instead, but the howler just catches it and like crumples it up in his hands. He then grabs Dredd and prepares to beat him within an inch of his life. Dredd keeps firing, but the howler deflects the bullets. And um, even like Dredd fires a high X round, the howler just kind of catches it and like holds the explosion inside of his hands. Dredd tries to escape as the Howler shouts after him so loud his visor cracks and things look bad as Howler tosses Dredd around, dunking him in a bat of goo and beating him bloody. Judge Homer arrives on the scene and when he tries to interfere with the Howler's torture of Dredd, the alien just like shoots a missile that pops out of his shoulder at the judge, blowing a hole in him. Bloodied and bootless, we've got a real, like, battle damage dread here. You know, he lost a shoe in some of his pants and stuff like that. Um, he pulls a peacock-themed post out of the wall and tries to stab the alien with it. But the Howler is, honestly, more than anything else, just kind of charmed by Dredd's tenacity, basically. He's like, oh, you're still fighting. That's cute. <laughs> he kicks Dredd around and finally kicks him out the front door as more judges come rushing in. They check on Dredd, who says stum gas is the only way. So the boys in blue or possibly black uh, drop their respirators and come in shooting as a cloud bellows around them. Good luck, you guys. Next time. Shout, shout, shout. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. It's very fun. It's a, as I said, the art style's fun to look at because Mm -hmm. even the panel layout, you can get lost in it because there's so many sharp lines and straight lines that like mm-hmm. you even get lost sometimes like oh is this that same panel or did we move to a different one mm-hmm. but uh, very abstracted but i don't know for some reason because of that i'm more okay with judge dread getting the crap beat out of him like usually I feel like <laughs> i'd be more upset about it but i'm like yeah well this is like a weird you know parallel universe where you know uh this art style makes more sense and then that's fine uh but I think, <laughs> yeah interesting well, yeah, it reads more cartoony for some reason. So it's like, yeah, it's yeah, cartoony stuff can happen. But uh, I think when I zoom out, I'm still like, interesting character. Just some weird Hulk thing that just can beat the crap out of. Uh, you just can't, you can't shoot it to death. Um, yeah, but yeah, like, it's it's an unusual kind of villain um, for Dread, just because he rarely actually kind of. He really actually comes up against someone who just kicks the shit out of him for like, you know, <laughs> half the comic or something like that, you know? Right. Yeah. It's, um, and it's, um, but it's interesting because I don't have that thought of like, oh, they're going to clever their way out of it. I just expect mm-hmm. some sort of weird Looney Tunes-esque solution 
to solve it. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, we'll, we'll have to see. I'm, I'm curious. Interesting. I think it's an interesting, certainly a, a diversion from the standard Dread story, I think, of just here's a unbeatable alien jerk. Like, what's Dread going to do about this? You know? <laughs> right. Yes. But so I guess, I guess uh, let's, you know, from one really, like from one unique visual style to another, I think we can jump over to story two, Shimura. Script about Robbie Morrison, art robot Colin McNeil, letting robot John Beeston. Shimura, once a Hondo City judge, now a Ronin fighter of the Yakuza, gets a fairly sexy back rub from that lady that he met last, or that he dropped in on last episode. He's gained new scars since they last met, and he recounts the ambush that started his current journey, getting gunned down by a fellow judge. It's tough because Hondo judges don't wear name badges, but Shimura pulled like a a tag from the man who killed him. He knows the traitor, but he's too close to the chief judge for him to do anything about it. So instead, he's been investigating the attack on his own, rolling up the Yakuza as he does. The woman asks or or asks about Shimura's friend on the force, Itami, who has changed greatly. And then meanwhile, Judge Inaba is researching at the records department because Shimura has isolated himself greatly, um, you know, and so it's very hard to find because he's lost all of his known associates and stuff, or he's hidden all of them. Um, Shimura goes to put the moves on this lady, but she rejects him as he scares her now. And later, with visions of the attack, Shimura starts awake, but finds his old friend Judge Itami waiting for him, the woman taken hostage. But wait! Ah, oh, swerve! Itami explains that he's actually Oyabun Sagawa of the Igarashi Kai, who basically was the that Yakuza leader guy in the tank that Shimura killed right at the start of this story. So he and the father of that girl Michiko that Shimura saved also. Basically, this crime boss guy did a brain swap with one of the Hondo City judges, and it's a big problem. The Oyabun slashes open the woman's stomach, and she dies in front of Shimura. He doesn't make a sound, just looks up with his angry eyes. So, Shim- so Sagawa then cuts off Shimura's pinky and is like, now everyone will think that you're just another judge turned Yakuza that died in disgrace and tells his goons to make him your finest kill, my Koban. Make him scream. But Shimura doesn't look pleased about all this. He's got that kind of, you know, Stanley Kubrick, like looking up from under his brows, like I'm going to kill all you guys kind of looks. <laughs> Covered in blood and held by Yakuza thug, Shimura is being beaten with some cyber knuckle things when suddenly a shadowy judge shoots one of the goons with a rifle and bursts in. Shimura and the judge take on the goons, Shimura using his weapons against them, and we see that the judge is Inspector Inaba, his old sidekick, who's now been tasked by, you know, the boss judges to bring Shimura in. It seems she was able to locate this former geisha's house and come to get him. They lower their weapons, and then we jump ahead to another judge sort of doing going over a crime scene in this house. They identify Inaba's helmet and assume that she's either captured in pursuit or as joined with the outcast this inspector then sends this information on to itami who's in charge of this search and is now the sagawa all you know the the yakuza guy basically it's very you know you got to keep all these balls in the air right 
and who is now deciding to show his daughter Michiko the inner workings of his business, including the undercities beneath Hondo, full of mutants that are referred to as Oni by sort of the people of Hondo City, basically. Shimura and Inaba discuss the corrupt nature of Hanbo, Hondo. It's full of Yakuza influence. Elsewhere, it seems Sagara has, con- you know, has contacted one of the Oni, who's that hairy guy with the big teeth from previous episodes. And Sagara, Sagawa offers the beast a blood link with the target, which will cause the Oni to frenzy. And I'll mention the Oni also has a naked lady next to him, neither here nor there, but sort of set dressing, right. I guess. And the monster, the, the mutant monster eats Shimura's fingertip and prepares for the hunt. Next, we see Inaba and Shimura skulking through the Hondo sewers, which are full of vagrants abandoned by societies. These are their society's outcasts, including a woman giving birth in the sewers because she's violated Hondo's one-child pr- policy, I guess. Inaba goes to help her, but Shimura isn't bothered. He doesn't, um, you know, and he doesn't even know yet that there's an Oni after him. So he's going to be really, like, sort of feeling weird. <laughs> the heads of the Hondo Justice Department are going to a, the house of Sagawa for a media event, like a press conference thing. Meanwhile, in the sewers, that baby, the baby was just delivered in cries. And there's a crying echo to meet that sound, which are which is made by these weird bug monsters that the Oni controls. People flee as Shimura holds them off, eventually escaping through a like sewer entrance right into the arms of some waiting judges. Other members of Inaba's squad have been sent back to to guard duty, and she is under suspicion of being, uh, you know, teaming up with Shimura. And now he's going to be, and now Shimura himself is going to be executed on live video broadcast across all channels before they could do that. The giant form of the Oni bursts through the floor. Shimura fights the beast and picks, um, and I, I don't understand, I don't know where, if this was one of his previous powers, but he's picked up the ability to shoot, like, laser beams from his palms. Right, I know. Basically, that. which seems like something he hadn't been able to do in the past, but I, I, right. I, I, might, I might have missed it, I guess. I missed it too, if it did. Yeah, but so he basically he does a pretty cool move, I think, with these blasts where he jams the um I forget what you the the Attendo cane that uh, Hondo City Judge uses, which is kind of this like it's kind of shaped like a it's 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 like a like a nightstick or, or like a club, but it's got kind of a hook part as well, and he like yeah. jams the hook part right into the forehead of the Oni, and then he hits it with a laser blast. So that the laser like splits on right. the on the side, of the, hits him in both eyes, and then comes out the back of his head. Oh, it's pretty cool. <laughs> but he <laughs> blinds this thing. <laughs> Usually, a scythe in the head's enough to take you out. But no, just, no, he's putting all special. Sure, yeah, he made like five holes in that guy's head all at once. You know. Sword in hand, Shimura makes the defeated monster tell him his plan, and we learn that Sagawa plans to have the chief judge assassinated and take over rule of the city, controlling it all. And indeed, at the Sagawa house, we see Sagawa Azitami explaining all of his plans to Michiko. It's one of those, like, you know, a Yakuza will kill the chief judge, so they'll want an anti-Yakuza guy to take control, and that'll be me. But then I'll actually have the whole Yakuza. I'll actually, because I'm actually the Yakuza for real, I'll like take over the city 
for crime purposes, basically. That kind of thing. Um, (laughs) You know, standard evil plot. Michiko says he's insane, and he just says she's naive. Back at the fight, the Oni is angry at his defeat by Shimura. He says he won't forget that, and then breathes a gout of flame at him. Next time, hear my scream. I have a little trouble with the Oni giving all the information and then escaping. Like, if you had the fire breath escape card, you should have used that before. Like, here's all the plot. All right, now I'm out of here. Yeah, he's talking real tough for someone who got his eyes put out. Like, you should just sort of, like, just accept being arrested or something, you know? Right. I'm also trying to figure out his anatomy to get scythed in the forehead and then get both your eyes blown out. And then you're like... And next time, I was like, he should be dead. I was, I was like, oh, this guy's yeah. dead, clearly. And they're like, no, he's fine. He's, yeah, he's lost a lot of get his revenge. Lost a lot of teeth and stuff too. Like he's not right. looking good, but he's definitely planning for future fights as well. So you know, optimism yeah, is, if nothing else, I guess. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, and I, and I, you know, I, I sort of mentioned this in the opening thing. Where we've got a lot of big monsters in the Meg right now. You know, one way or another, the Howler, this Oni. And, of course, Legion in Story 3, Missionary Man. Scripted by Gordon Rennie, art and robot Frank Quitely, letting robot Eddie Parkhouse. So last time, Legion, a big gray monster with apocalyptic designs, crashed into the wastes outside Texas City and killed everybody in a chapel. Now, Preacher Kane, the Missionary Man, and his partner, Resurrection Joe, are after him. They arrive at the church and find the preacher hung from the rafters with a note stuffed in his mouth. Catch me if you can, missionary man. And villainy, you know, villains often rhyme, I find. But before they before the pair go after them, they take time to bury the dead and set fire to the church because the Lord don't live there no more. The pair head across the prairie, passing burned out towns and cactus fields full of people like crucified on the cactuses or hung over them and stuff like that. Cain prays and the bodies start to talk, taunting and insulting the lawmen as they go. They approach some mountains, the Golgotha Heights, which of course has a lot of meaning just in terms of like the, the biblical word for Golgotha and stuff. And at the center of it, in a crater with a lava pit, Legion sits on a throne surrounded by those Gila lizards and a bunch of cowboy types, the worst of the West, who we saw him calling last episode, as well as offensive head-on spikes, which I think really adds a lot to the ambience of the joint, Eli, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> he uh, calls the lizards stuff like Brother Matthew and Isaiah, stuff like that. They're kind of like they're members of his church. Um, and when he learns that the missionary man is on his way, he laughs. Things are finally getting exciting. Kane and Joe are riding through a narrow canyon when a landslide of rocks falls behind them and an angry mob appears in front. Kane quotes Psalms 91.5 as he starts blowing away fools wholesale, but a Gila sneaks in and guts the preacher's horse. It falls and Kane is mobbed, but not out as he blasts his way through the pile of attackers, switching to Psalm 35.4, but Legion shows up. Cain appropriately quotes Psalm 3-7 while breaking off some of Legion's teeth, which is like, shatter the teeth of mine enemy or whatever. Um, but And the monster's not amused. It slaps and punches Cain, lifting him into the air. He talks tough, 
But Kane manages to pull a secret gun from behind his back and he blows a hole in Legion. But even that's not enough. So Kane shoots the nearby cliff face and brings a ton of rocks down on the both of them. But no, Legion climbs out of the rocks. He's not dead. He rejoins the army of the damned who have captured Resurrection Joe and head off, leading a pool of blood under the rock where Kane died. Oh no. Yeah, bad times. Resurrection Joe wakes up to find himself surrounded and at the mercy of, of Legion, the missionary man dead. What'll happen to Joe? Legion and his evil buddies plan to hunt him for sport, as you do. Do one of those, like, get to running, we'll come after you. <laughs> they give him a lead, and then, and, and then they do so. Joe runs, praying for a miracle, and we see the stones that covered Preacher Kane fall over. He's alive! <laughs> The Healamonger have cornered Joe, but just when all things lost, seem lost, Kane is there, slicing the lizard to oblivion with a big knife. He tells Joe, we've got work to do. Divine retribution. Later, Legion is lounging on his throne when Kane arrives with a grip of lizard heads. It's time to settle things between them as Legion kneels before Kane. Suddenly, weirdly looking small, actually. Like, he's not right. as big as he seemed like he might have been. Still wide, though. Next time in Missionary Man. Deliverance! That's fun. Uh, weird, but fun. Uh, it's um the rocks that he came out of. I think they mm. were trying to uh, emulate, um, uh, like, uh, the second coming. The mm-hmm. Jesus was yeah, right, yeah, like, yeah. Like, you're right. Side. Yeah, rock moved to the side. You're definitely right uh, there, I think. Uh, which I think is cute um but it's a uh, yeah still a little weird like it's it's fun but it's like i feel like they're trying to get a message to me that i'm not getting like i, I don't oh, know yeah that's that's yeah that's the whole thing that's weird i don't know i really liked the um i really liked uh just the fight scenes like yeah there's this one where kane gets mobbed and all these guys are sort of piling in on top of him and then he just like you know, he he shoot under the pile. He clearly shoots somebody. You see this guy just like flying up out of the pile with like a with with, with like a manhole size cover uh, size like hole in his chest. You know, and I think that's right. a lot of fun. <laughs> right. Yeah. And so yeah, that's what I'm trying to do is just just have fun with it. It's fine. Don't think about it. Too yeah. Much. I would I would say like, I mean, I appreciate that like Gordon Rennie has found the big books, the big book of like fighting. Uh, religious quotations or whatever, because mm-hmm. he's definitely right. hitting all these ones, you know. Right. Um, um, but uh, but yeah, uh, I would say it's mostly just sort of weird guy fights preacher, and you're sort of you know you're definitely in it for um for this Frank Whiteley fight scenes and stuff. I think are yeah, really yeah. solid. Yeah, yeah. I have two uh, theories. I'm wondering if uh, this thing's faith is uh, determines his size. If he's feeling less confident, yeah. which gets smaller maybe. Because he did regenerate pretty quickly after getting a hole blasted through him, and then he seems fine now. Uh, yeah, definitely. It is one of those. I mean, there is sort of <laughs> there's a tradition I've noticed in com- like this is less for actual characters and more for sort of like like deadly animals or something where they can sort of change so- where they it's not actively changing size, but they just sort of end up being whatever size they have to be for a current situation. I guess right. like. Yes. There was there was exactly. a story about like a shark where sometimes, you know, the shark was small enough to fit through, you know, like a pipeline or something, mm. but also <laughs> big enough that like a scuba diver could 
mistake its mouth for like like a cave to hide in or something wow. like that, you know. That's funny. I like that. I like that narratively at least. You know, Although it's not I like it's just a faux pas. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Like, it's not actually a power that the thing has or anything. It's more just sort of like this creature, right. you know, this thing's just the size of whatever size is narratively convenient at this moment, you know, right. that kind of stuff. Yes, exactly. This is to like protagonist powers. It's the same thing. Uh, Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, plot armor, monster <laughs> sizes, that kind of stuff, you know? Yeah. As a comic creator, I know that it is hard being consistent, you know, when you like have a character that's shorter or taller than another character and then you have them in another scene and then you mix it up and you're like, oh, no, people are going to yeah. catch this. Uh, Especially when it's a non-human, so you don't really have like a good like sense of where right. they should be fitting in and stuff like that, you know. Right. I'm like also a sad that missionary man or something. I'm sad the missionary man's second hidden, third hidden gun didn't take him out. That's usually the go-to move. It's true. Like, that's, it's that's what you should have well, worked. Well, 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 he pulled out the one hidden gun from the back. But now it looks like in this scene he's pulling out a fourth hidden gun from like the uh, from like the shoulder holster or something like that. So he's got Gotta a fair amount. Guns. Listen, right. always couple guns on there. <laughs> nice. Let's continue on now. Take a quick break at our midpoint with covers, editorials, and dreadlines. It's all the non-comic stuff here. Uh, issue 52, uh, Cry Freedom. Walter the the Robot is declared a public enemy in this Cliff Robinson cover. Um, it's not my fave, but this is the first Cliff Robinson magazine cover by him, and he'll do a ton of ones that are really great over the years. He's like a real, like, long-term cover artist for both the magazine and 2000 AD. The editorial uh, discusses old and new creatives in the Judge Dredd magazine, like Ian Gibson and and Mick McMahon on one side and artist Charlie Gillespie and writer Chris Sandley on the other. Dreadlines ask for more Devlin Waugh and Red Razors, and Red will return in 2000 AD this year, but Devlin won't be back until 1997, actually. Letters compliment the current Meg, say the letters pages is dull, and Mr. Blobby's very positive about the magazine all the way from Blobby Land, which is a very strange British children's entertainer kind of thing. There's also a new section here called the Inquisition, answering various dread themes questions. So if you, you know, you're if you're a serious nerd like me and you want the official answering for canon purposes, this is where you can get it, basically. The <laughs> First one asks about the Statue of Judgment, semi-recently destroyed over in 2000 AD. And there's, I guess, currently a question of whether it will be rebuilt or not. Issue 53, head-to-head, Missionary Man and Legion stare down in a Frank Whiteley cover. The editorial welcomes Mick McMahon back to dread and announces another novel sneak peek. The Inquisition section asks about the lawgiver palm prints and when Walter was rebuilt. Dreadline also comp uh Dreadline has compliments for recent stories and then just a lot of complaints about these frequent letter writers Nixon and and uh Sloano which I'm not covering cuz I won't be part of their games. The issue ends with yet another Dread novel preview. They are putting these books out to be read. Issue 54, Shimura Sushi? Oh no. Colin McNeil Draws the Oni holding a bloody Hondo helmet. The editorial crows about uh, 2018 in the magazine doing well at the UK Comic Art Awards. 
and a poll in Comic World recently as well. Just people saying the magazine's good. <laughs> the Inquisition asked when various characters are returning to the mag, including Brit Sit Brute. And there's some explanation about the advent, about how the advent of the judges overlaps with there being a, a president of the United States and just sort of how the judge system and the U.S. government sort of how those interact, basically. We'll see more about this in the future. Dreadline's letters are mostly about the remodel of the comic in issue 50 and basically people being sort of positive about the Meg and talking about, oh, yeah, I remember those old days, but the good days are still here. It's been four years. It's okay, y'all. Like, I don't know. Right. <laughs> but, nah. Bleh. Uh, uh, speak of strange characters looming over our city, Eli, we can go to story four, Creep. Script Robot Size Spencer, Art Robot Kevin Cullen, Lady Robot Gordon Robson. All right, so Cy Judge Casey has taken the long walk into the Undercity, um, where she's met insane senior Judge uh, Gunn, who's in charge down there, and his two-headed pet alligator, Cerberus. Meanwhile, the creep has also spotted Casey and, fall and fallen in love. So, you know, we're on a collision course here. <laughs> At night, Casey sneaks into the Lost Patrol, quote-unquote, the skeletal remains of other Undercity judges, uses their powers on them, and finds that they were all killed by Judge Gunn himself. She decides to run before he kills her, but when she does, she's caught by Gunn and, and Cerberus. He orders her to jump off a nearby cliff into this polluted, big, smelly river, or he'll shoot her. Casey is worried, but hears a tiny voice that throws up a rope and tells her to put the her foot in it and then jump. With no other choice, she does so and is pulled up by the creep, who also has Cerberus somehow. I'm not sure how that works, but the two-headed gator's there and creep slashes the gator's throat with its fink with his claws and then tosses it down to the river. The splash telling gun that Corey has hit bottom. He walks off. And Corey finds herself blindfolded and led into a room by the creep. And the room's full of like old timey fancy stuff that Corey thinks is really tacky. He says these are her quarters and says dinners at eight. Formal dress, please. And Corey, not really knowing what to do, um, has no choice but to play along. So she puts on the provided dress that the freaks that, that, that the creeps laid out. And as she takes off her clothes and stuff, the creep is looking at this on his surveillance cameras, which is not cool, frankly. Like, right, exactly. Clear invasion of privacy. Yeah, you weirdo. At a fancy dinner, the creep pulls hair off a rat, playing that like she loves me, she loves me not thing. When Casey shows up in the dress, they sit by a fire as she eats just this big ham hock leg of meat. And Creep laments that he's so mistreated by the world. He goes for a kiss, and Casey tries to do a mind scan on him, find, finding only terrifying images and insanity. He senses her scan is and is incensed, really angry. He locks her down psychically and floats her away. Meanwhile, Judge Gunn has found the dead body of Cerberus and blames Casey for it. Oh, it's a mistake of one of those mix-up whatevers. In her room, Casey wonders how to get out as that sewer monster with the dude's head from the previous creep story comes in. Casey gets this guy to lead her out of the creep's lair. 
And that seems to be working until she comes across an enraged Judge Gunn. Oh, we're all building to a to a climax here, buddy. Gunn shoots that dude-headed monster and prepares to shoot Casey when the creep arrives in a John Wayne costume. It was me that killed your gator partner, he says, or words to that effect. Gunn attacks the creep, but creep grows like crazy razor-sharp robot claws and uses those to just rip a hole into Gunn's torso, killing him. Casey isn't sure what to think and shoots the creep in the head, but he's fine. Come on. He uses his powers to swap around faces. There's like Clark Gable from Gone with the Wind, Judge Dredd, and all that kind of stuff. Casey wonders if she might love him, but if to figure that out, she needs to be able to look into his head. So he lets her for a kiss. And so they kiss, and she goes into his brain, and it's full of crazy imagery lots of bugs and explosions and things at each corner there's an image of casey and the creep kissing and something weird's coming out of his head like a like a drawer comes out of the back of his head and it's full of spiders all this this eyeballs yeah a lot of eyeballs opening up it's not good and i it's it's fairly gross but pretty none none of it's cool or cute or uh romantic I'd say it's kind of trippy, though. So I guess it kind of like it's I think it's doing what it's going to set out here, which is that after seeing that she like there's everything and nothing inside of her head and it breaks her mind. She sort of curls up into a in a fetal position, sucking her thumb, clearly mad. And the creep just grabs his guitar and walks off into the sewers. Loved and lost, you know. And that's it for this one. The creep will return at the end of this year. I gotta admit, still not liking the creep. Like, no, so, uh, yeah, I'm not liking it either. I gotta say, <laughs> it keeps. It feels very um, uh, Mary Sue-ish. Like very, just like. Mm-hmm. I'm trying to find out: is the creep uh, the writer? Does the writer think he's a creep and he wants to win stuff? I don't know. Yeah, because he does. He, he just kind of yeah. He kind of god modes his way through every encounter. You know, like it's just sort of. <laughs> Right. Like it's like this story is very much just sort of waiting till the creep shows up and then he wins instantly. And it's like, OK, I guess, you know. Right. But, yeah, it's like um, it's he's mad, but he's not even mad in an interesting way. He's like that <laughs> random type of mad where they're like, yeah. wouldn't this be funny if he was just wearing a cowboy hat? Like, not really. Not particularly. It's not really funny. It's weird. Yeah, it's a little close. It's a little Daffy, like it's trying to be Daffy Duckish or something like that, like that kind of like yeah. like Looney Tunes stuff. But then mm-hmm. like when you combine that with like kind of graphic violence and like mm-hmm. sexual menace and stuff like that, like that's just sort of yeah. it doesn't go together, you know? Yeah. It's, like it, it, it's yeah. going in, in 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 it's going to two extremes at the same time that I think makes it sort of tonally very weird i think right and it yeah it makes it hard to care about anything yeah that, that definitely nothing, nothing really matters um but it's also it gives it makes you ask those questions that you're not supposed to ask which are like if you could just teleport that alligator to him to you know slit his throat throw it over why mm-hmm. can't you just teleport her to him to, to just like why do you need the rope thing where'd you get the rope why yeah. does that alligator have it like it's just 
uh, yeah, yeah, the little continuity things sort of become more of a problem and stuff like that too. You got me questioning all kinds of things, and now I'm sort of poking holes I would normally not even think about. Right. You know that kind yeah, of stuff. Exactly. Yeah, no, I'm 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 happy to see the back of the creep. The next one we get will sort of be the be the final creep story, and I'm 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 happy for that. <laughs> right the best creep episode the, what the last one when they were like we're not doing this anymore like, you know sweet. every once in a while it does kind of you know we can sort of get to those points where it's like okay <laughs> like enough of this <laughs> but so let's finish up with a story that i think i don't know i'm i'm in i'm pretty interested in, in in pursuing i think it's got some there's some juice left in this here orange with story five anderson side division uh, script robot Alan Grant, art robot Charles Gillespie, Arthur Ranson, and Jousis, letting robot Annie Parkhouse, and Alita Fell. So we're get again, the, we're, it, this um, series is a bunch of different postcards from space. The postcards from the edge is sort of the overall t- style title of the story. Anderson's uh, journey through space and her encounters there and stuff like that. We're starting off with... Um, Charles with, with with newcomer Charles Gillespie um here it's his first time in the podcast and Anderson has traveled with some galactic pro wrestlers to Blassie's world which is of course named for classy Freddie Blassie the um long-term pro wrestler and um announcer and stuff and stands in front of and she stands in front of one of those posts where there's all these different arrows and dis and distances and stuff like that you know, it's a lot of different star names, though I notice one is a Rachel Ghoul, like in Batman, you know. <laughs> but anyway, she isn't sure where to go next, but then she trips into a lizard dude in a tight singlet. The alien, Ziggy the Force, can't speak English, but his promoter in a sweet hat apologizes, says it's bad luck to strike a woman in his culture, even accidentally, so to make up for it. He gives Anderson some tickets to the fight tonight. Anderson arrives, and it seems Ziggy is fighting the champ, warrior of the Black Sun, who is heavily favored. Still, Anderson bets on Ziggy and goes to watch the bout. Ziggy's doing okay, actually, but suddenly he grabs his head like he's in pain, and Anderson's suspicious. The warrior seems to be using psi power to cheat. Anderson quickly finds a hidden dude with a big head using mental powers, you know, doing that classic, like sort of, you know, two fingers on the temple kind of move. And she just punches him right in the face. This allows Ziggy to fight back and win the fight. And back in Mega City One, Anderson's uh, sparring partner or sort of long-term nemesis, Judge Goon, gets a postcard from her saying that he looks just like the mangled face of the warrior, now ex-champ. I like she's getting these custom uh, postcards from someplace, you know. That doesn't yeah. seem like they'd print those out in time for her to get one. Right, exactly. But, hey, sweet. Yeah, good times. Next That's one. He thought about. Yeah. Next time, one of my faves, Arthur Ranson, takes over for a story of how the Horsehead Nebula got its name. This postcard is addressed to Corrine and Leslie, these psychic kids these psychic twins from the triad story who we've seen once or twice here in the magazine as well. Anderson is using her wrestling winnings to go to planet Xanadu on an old space freighter, but the ship breaks down and there's time to kill. So the passengers tell stories and wait. One tells this horse, horse at Nebula story. And it's your kind of basic, like 
beautiful princess imprisoned by her evil father. And there's some battles that's fought. She's saved by a dude that's turned into a Pegasus who dies in the process. And her heart's so broken that the Pegasus is immortalized in the horsehead shape of the clouds of a nebula in deep space, which is a real thing, the horsehead nebula. It's like this cloud that naturally forms a horsehead shape, like the shape of a horsehead, like on a like on a knight in chess or something like that. It's got that shape. Um, and it's a, you know, it's a, just, just kind of a standard, like, you know, sort of fairy tale story. Anderson ends the letter with the quote that's followed her through her life, which is that special people shouldn't do ugly things, which was told to her by her friend, empath Corey, who committed suicide. And we see the twins have got the letter, but the Justice Department has heavily censored it. It's full of like black, mm-hmm. like cross out lines, especially on like the moral of the story and stuff like that. So the girls just sort of blaze, blithely pass it over, um, you know, and, and and then heads head to weapons training and stuff like that. But listen, there's all that. But I got to say that the money in this story is really Rancid's amazing art for it. You know, you really right. go and whole hog with this kind of fairy tale feel. The the planet of the gods this takes place in is just made up of gigantic statues the the tower that the princess or that the uh, the other the daughter of the gods the princess is in is this giant like fist and arm and she kind of like like she lives in the hand part and stuff there's all these really cool pegasus stuff flying through space and whatever like a pe- pegasus bat winged horse fight and stuff it's it's really cool yeah you know it's a uh, it's all really awesome they they paint the uh they paint it really well um and I mean uh. I would have been fine even if it was just like, eh, and that's the fairy tale and let's, let's roll through it. But they were able to tie it back in with the censorship of the note, which was like, yeah. oh yeah, it's a, it's a hellscape. Right. There's, there's all this censorship. That's great. <laughs> right. Never uh, forget how bad it is in Nega City one, you know, yeah, right. <laughs> like just keep yeah, in mind. Exactly. Yeah. And I, I like that format because they did that in the last <laughs> one. They were like, here's this space fight. I'm like, okay, irrelevant, but fine. But then for her to send the note, like, and also F that guy from the past. Yeah. I'm like, oh, nice. I'm in. Yeah, because it's it's still postcards from the edge, so it's very much sort of her sending these postcards to show her journey and stuff. Mm-hmm. For a final story, yeah, I like that. Yeah, go ahead. Sorry. Yeah, definitely. For a final part, Jousis takes over on art as Anderson dreams of a figure in black standing over an endless city. Very Batman, I think. Sort of as we go in here, Anderson sees this figure standing among gargoyles, a male figure that runs from bullets shot by flying machines and destroying them with sweet-throwing stars. Once, he was Orlock, the East Meg assassin, but now he's a changed man, as they explain that the events of Mars has destroyed his usual contempt for human life. Now he understands its value, even as he fights off like five dudes at once with like martial arts and things like that. Yeah, probably killing several of them, right? It's Seems like to- it, yeah. <laughs> It's the duality. Uh, duality of man, Eli, you know. <laughs> this isn't enough, though, as men in riot gear get the better of him and sort of kick his ass and stomp on him. Anderson isn't sure what the dream means, her dream of all this happening, until she gets a postcard herself from Orlock, simply saying, I need you now with money for a space ticket. And the postcard is for a place called Zerbia, where we see a bunch of blonde people with big guns 
and it's got the motto, a pure planet for pure people, which is ominous, frankly. Right. Yes. <laughs> Do they already have Space Texas? Or is that like a thing? Well, there's there's Texas City in um on like like sort of there, there there's east there, there there's mega city one on the east coast of the u.s mega city two on the west coast and then in between there there is uh texas city and that's where like the uh preacher kane and missionaries from and stuff like that and and, and we've seen that before it's a very sort of you know the judge how you know they wear cowboy hats instead of helmets and stuff like that mm-hmm. there that the judges do <laughs> yeah yeah, but yeah, I'm excited to see this uh, new place. Uh, uh, just the way they set it up, I'm like, it's going to be fun and hopefully thought provoking. I yeah, I go to Judge Anderson for thinking, and uh, I yeah, definitely that they pay off. Yeah, they got a grandma with a with with, with a chain gun in there. Like that's it, you know piques my interest. I must say. <laughs> <laughs> but with that, we've reached the end of our stories for this episode. Keeping it tight, just sort of you know everything either con- continuing or concluding here. Just five five stories to keep us over. And with that, I must know, Eli, what are your top bottom uh, stories for this uh, episode? Yeah. Well, I think. Uh... I know I'm going to put creep on bottom. That's mm-hmm. uh, pretty easy for me. Um, but trying to figure out what to put on top. Because all the other ones I liked, you know, for different reasons. Um, I didn't, didn't sure. have anything that upset me about anything. Except creep. That one's just like... Um, <laughs> I don't know, it's it's the opposite of um, how I felt about uh, um, Heavy Metal Dread. When they had that artist that kept grossing me out about the artwork. But I was like, story's fine. Glinted, yeah. This art haunts me. This one's like, art's amazing. Story haunts <laughs> me. Give me some freaking interesting. Um, but uh, I, I liked um, uh, Shimura. Um, but I think I'm going to give my top story to be an Anderson story. Um, yeah, I think I think Anderson's going to going to get it. I did like the. Um, the uh, second one, the fantasy about uh, the horseshoe, neb- the horse uh, head nebby. Yeah. Um, although I think uh, I think I did also like the howler, just for it being very weird artistically, but still it was nice mm-hmm. seeing Judge Red get the crap beat out of him and just nothing yeah. he did do working. Um, so like, yeah, as far as art and story together, it's the uh, horse head nebula. But as far as like my enjoyment of Dread. I'm like, I'm, it's nice seeing you get the crap beat out of your dread. And I think that's uh, <laughs> might, 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 might split it uh, between those nice. two. Awesome. But yeah. What were uh, yeah. your top and bottom? Oh, man. I mean, I'll certainly join you with the creep as my as my bottom story. That's just uh, mm-hmm. not great. I don't really like it very much. And, you know, mm-hmm. especially when it sort of goes from like a story I don't like to one that sort of makes me a little bit uncomfortable, honestly, is sort of mm-hmm. like, yeah, like this. Like, right. Let's keep moving. I want to be uncomfortable in a good way. If you make me uncomfortable, I want to be cool. Yeah, I like this feeling. Not uncomfortable, like uh, ah. Yeah, I don't know if I want to. I don't know if I want to even. I don't know if I want to hear more stories from this guy. You know, he seems <laughs> like. I mean, I mean, I guess he does seem like a creep. So it's what it says on the on the label. Mm, but still, yes. like, it's not. That's not what I'm looking for. You know. Right. Right. Um. <laughs> yeah. For my top, I don't know. I thought. I thought Dread was pretty cool. I like this Howler story. Um, I like the end of the giant story, just sort of very much scratching an inch of having some classic Dread artists mm. on there. That was really good. Mm. Yeah. Um, Shimura, I thought was cool. Um, just a lot of this, you know, 
Yakuza fighting and stuff. Although, man, there's just a lot going on in the course of each Shimura story. It's very dense, I think. Yeah. And this one had like an extra boob in it. Like it was just like so yeah. much going on. Yeah. Listen, I'm fine. Listen, I'll accept the boobs. It's fine. <laughs> Whatever. Yeah. But I think it's really, I think it's really interesting seeing Missionary Man and Shimura next to each other, just because mm-hmm. I feel like Shimura is very dense and Missionary Man's a little bit more spread out, basically. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, even in their panel design, because I feel like Missionary Man always has this kind of like six panel layout of sort of like you know two 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 or whatever, and yeah. Shimura has this twelve panel layout of like sort of you know four. Four in the top, four in the middle, four in the bottom of the page. And there's sort of some variations between those, but that's sort of what it kind of goes back to, basically. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. This is me yeah, that, probably that is talking above my pay grade here, but <laughs> <laughs> I no, just sort of uh, noticed it. I, I, I just sort of noticed it in Shimura that like sort of page to page, the panels all have a very there's variations in it, but it has a very similar panel layout. Each each page mm-hmm. does, I guess. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And I think that um uh helps both of them with uh, their legibility um mm-hmm. but uh yeah no I, I, we we could do another podcast about panel layout and like how it can be used and leveraged in uh, uh storytelling because i I'd i love do to, yeah. find that particularly fascinating no i find that i find that to be really interesting too I, I remember i read um in when i read invincible um mm-hmm. that was made like with robert kirkman and stuff they sort of there was one there, there was a period of time where they just had the same panel layout for like an entire issue or something sort of <laughs> led to some interesting storytelling conceits and stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, I think for my top, I might, uh, I'm tempted to go with Anderson because Anderson really served up a really fun, like mixed set of stories mm-hmm. this time. Oh so yeah. Yeah. We had the wrestling stuff, which I appreciate as a wrestling fan, although could have had more in jokes to be honest, but mm-hmm. I accept <laughs> that if I had done this, even in 94, I'd have a ton of really incomprehensible in-jokes that I would have appreciated. And maybe four or five other people would have as well, but no one else would have. Um, right, right. But but that was fun. And then, you know, just the, the fairy tale nature of the Horsehead Nebula story, I thought was really good. And then this kind of Batman stuff in, uh, in the final story as well was also really interesting. Yeah. yeah, I think it in also, the end, it yeah, also sorry. up for like um something that might come later too. Like exactly, like, oh, yeah. Where's that one gonna go? Yeah, especially because for better or for worse, this the while they they have been linked, these Anderson stories have been very like scattershot or like or like episodic. They've had different artists each time, and they've sort of had different tones and stuff. And I think this sort of kicking off into another storyline, I think, is very interesting and a good way to start that. So yeah. I'll, yeah, I'll say Anderson's my top. Why not? Good times. Nice. Yeah. And with that, here we go. I hope everybody enjoyed the show. As always, you can find Big Meg One on iTunes, Stitch Google Play Store, Spotify, or a podcast site, BigMegOne.com. Contest us at BigMegOne at gmail.com. And the 2080 forums are Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter pages. For all those, Big Meg One written out, you'll find us and drop us a rating or a review wherever you listen to us. Or, you know, if someone's asking for a cool podcast, send them our way. This show is brought to you by Steve Green, Robert Hardingham, and your friends at the 2080 Forums. If you'd like to join them and help support the show, we'd appreciate it. Check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash Cradaline. That's our podcast network. There you can support the show and get excellent rewards. And come back next time as we'll continue all of our continuing stories here. So basically everything this episode but creep will continue on to next episode. 
and we'll start a whole new story called Harmony. She's going to have a badass lady kicking pe- kicking people's asses. I'm pretty excited about it. Yeah, it should be good. And until then, I'm Conrad there, Eli, and we are Big Meg One. Draw girl.